0: Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. I don't think there is a more important issue or definitely not many more important issues in life than love and sex. These things are a mystery to a lot of us and that's interesting to me because they are so important. Well, we have somebody here today to talk to us about those things. He's a registered psychotherapist, a philosopher and the author of Eros and Ethos or Ethos. A New Theory of Sexual Ethics. Jason Stotts, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So the title of your book I find very interesting because it mentions a sexual ethic or sexual ethics. So Mm -hmm. for starters, what is a sexual ethic and why do we need one?
1: Uh, It's a really good question. So you can think of ethics sort of broadly as uh, the science of how to live a good human life. And That is very important, but it doesn't always track certain domains as well as you might hope, right? So, for example, general um, guidance about honesty, um, while good, it's not necessarily going to help like in a business domain, right? So business ethics is kind of like its own subdomain, and sexual ethics is similarly uh, its own subdomain. It partly because the sort of general rules of ethics, while they do apply in this domain, um, need much more fleshing out to really um, be useful. And ideally, these things are useful, or else why do we have them, right? Um, and, you know, I, sexual ethics is not something that is done very much. Um, and I think that that's a, a huge miss on the part of philosophy. Um, I think that is uh, explained by the sort of religious traditions dominating the field and um, them sort of taking pretty dismal views of sex and the human body and, and this world even. Um, and I think that's kind of why we haven't seen it.
0: So sexual ethics obviously apply to romantic relationships. Why are romantic relationships so important, so vital to the human experience? Um, Good question. So it's because of the thing we are. Um, There are,
1: you know, sort of three ways to classify living things, right? You have social animals like us, and we tend to live in packs or tribes. um, And uh, we sort of work for a, I'm going to use this very controversial term, but a common good. And I mean, that's for more of how Aristotle would mean it and not sort of how more contemporary people would mean it. But this is what we are. We're social animals. You can contrast this with things like eusocial animals, like ants, where eusocial animals will um, subordinate or even destroy an individual for the sake of the collective, or other animals that are uh, entirely individualistic, where they don't see others of their kind except for in the mating season. Um, some large cats are like this, some um, with smaller uh, animals. Um, But we don't really fit in either of those two camps, we are social animals, we value the individual above the collective, but we also value our connections with others of our kind and connections with others of our kind are, are really critical for the human animal to flourish. And this is even literally, uh, there are studies uh, in babies, if babies aren't touched and held enough, um, they can have failure to thrive and even die. And there are these really interesting attachment studies from post-World War II um, that really demonstrate this, that the babies that weren't held in the children that weren't like touched and encouraged and loved, they had really high mortality rates that couldn't be explained by anything else but that fact. So we, it turns out, it's really important for us to have connections with others of our kind. And one of the most significant of these connections is the romantic relationship. Um, as an adult, um, the romantic relationship sort of neurophysiologically relies on this, this sort of early attachment system on one hand and the sexual system. And you put those things together and that's what a romantic relationship is in a human adult. Uh, evolution doesn't create new systems where it can piggyback on old ones. And the attachment system is, is something that all basic mammals have. Um, so it's because we're social animals that we, we need these things, um, And, you know, not only romantic relationships, but friendships. Uh, Most of us feel connected to our families of origin, but not all of us. Many of us create new families uh, by creating, you know, getting a partner, maybe entering into a marriage, uh, creating children or adopting them. And these social connections are, for most people, part of what it means to live a good life.
0: I'm very interested in attachment styles. Uh, I myself had a insecure, ambivalent attachment style. And I'm hoping you can explain that in a second, but I just want, so you can understand me a little bit. And this impacted my life incredibly in terms of my jealousy, possessiveness in relationships. It ultimately played a big part in my ending up in prison. I probably would have ended up there anyways because of other values that I held, but the specific crime that I ended up in jail with for had to do with that. So I think it's, it's important to, Get into this a little bit. Can you explain to us, first of all, what are attachments? To, what are attachment styles, and why are they so important when it comes to relationships?
1: Yeah. So, this entire theory grew out of this sort of post World War II research that I was just talking about with the children. Um, and one, so the sort of first element we're talking about is what we call emotional attunement. What emotional attunement is, is uh, the connection between a child, um, infant, young child, and a caregiver. And it's that the child infant feels that the parent is aware and reflective of their internal and emotional states. So for example, um, you have an infant who's crying, you're like, Oh, no, are you okay? But you are sort of reflecting this internal state. And then at the same time, um, giving comfort, being aware of the infant's internal state, and then sort of reflecting it back and and acting towards to, to sort of help it um is what we're talking about attunement it doesn't it's not like this like huge sort of abstract idea this this is how you would do it for Mm -hmm. like a slightly older child you you know let's say that they're um, having a bit of a tantrum let's say you have like a three-year-old um you know you say oh no are you okay what's wrong can you can you use your words can you tell me you seem really frustrated right now it seems like it's so frustrated maybe you can't even control it but you help them sort of gain words to understand their internal states to sort of Uh, start to match these emotional words and concepts we have to internal states not only the cognitions but the sort of bodily states and we call that sort of generally emotional intelligence in sort of psychology based on a book called emotional intelligence by a guy guy named daniel coleman attachment grows out of uh, our attachment style grows out of early attunement and early attunement is, um, has profound even neuropsychological changes in the brain. Like you can actually, see there's like physical structural differences with children who are attuned versus unattuned. Um, there's some, some really interesting research on that front. The attachment styles, um, so some of the research is about the sort of post-World War II and the other sort of where the term comes from, I'm blanking on her name, but she would take parents and they would come in with a, a young child, I think at the age is around three or so, uh, and there would be an investigator And the the mother, or it was usually the mother, would- would... Excuse
0: me one second. Are you talking about Mary Ainsworth?
1: Yes, that's, yes, thank you. Uh, This is the original research. Uh, the, The mother would leave and they would watch what the child did. And this is where we actually get the term attachment styles from. So some children were secure and the, the parent would go and everything would be okay, they'd come back, the, the child would reconnect. Um, you know, maybe they'd be a little upset when they left, but this was considered normal. Um, some children would be entirely indifferent to the parent or caregiver leaving. And these were the avoidant attached children. They just didn't care because they didn't see the parent as a source of comfort or support. And then the anxious ones would just basically melt down. Um, they became so distraught when the caregiver was gone, uh, that they couldn't function. And this is sort of the modern idea of attachment. And attachment theory has sort of evolved. And there are, um, you know, we we have sort of more terms now. But originally, I think there were just the three sort of normal, anxious and avoidant. Um, it, the more have been created, um, there may have been a fourth in Ainsworth's research, but if there is, I don't remember what it is. But but the attachment that someone has in childhood does have a, a profound impact, um, not only in the brain, but but on their the way they conceptualize the role that other people should play in their life. And this is not generally a conscious sort of judgment. This generally sits down to the level we call the core beliefs, right? So we think of kind of the cognitive structure of the mind. You have conscious uh, thought. You have internalized beliefs that you may or may not be aware of, but... But this deepest level, you have this thing we call the core beliefs. And the core beliefs are a running narrative across the course of a person's life about three things and three things only. Yourself, other people and the world. And this gives rise to um, the sort of fundamental view of everything. I call this existential orientation. Ayn Rand called the sense of life. This research came out really about the time she died. Um, So the cognitive revolution started in the 60s she actually had some correspondence with a guy named Albert Ellis who started the cognitive revolution. Um, And it is actually sort of an interesting debate that happened between him and Brandon and things kind of went sideways. And and he wrote a book that objectivism was a cult and so kind of devolved, but, but she actually was kind of connected to the birth of cognitive psychology. Um, But I don't think she ever sort of saw the development of the sort of later um, psychology, but, but in the core belief level, this issue of attachment attunement is one of the factors in our conceptualization of other people, right? The sort of sense of what are other people going to do for me? And someone who is anxiously attached um, is going to see some other people as not necessarily helpful, uh, that things go wrong, they're not going to help, they're not going to be sources of support. They may even be active harms depending on the experiences that a child internalizes. Um, but it's these things are not held consciously. It's this sort of sense of the world, sense of other people that they're not going to be supported, uh, that they're not going to be helped. And that's really changes our interactions with other humans and what we expect uh, from them and what we expect for ourselves.
0: It's interesting you talk about core beliefs. These core beliefs that I held that it's hard, you know, They're so intertwined what comes first and, you know, that sort of thing. And it's like you said, it's just a sense of life. But I ultimately boil down to a few or a couple or a few thoughts about myself, the world and other people. One was I needed other people to love me. <laughs> Another one I had was I'm unlovable. A third one I had is everybody in this world is going to behave like my parents, Now, all three of these are incredibly unreasonable, but nonetheless, when they're interacting inside me, I felt like I need all this love. No one's going to love me. All these people are going to betray me. And it led to a a powder keg inside me. And as I got older and by the use of the the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, applying them to myself, I drilled it into my head. Number one, I don't need everybody to love me. That's just not true. It's an empirically false claim. The other false claim that I had was that I'm not lovable or or that was based on the way that my parents acted and they loved me. They just had issues of their own. But, you know, I had a difficult time separating that. So there was another false belief I had. And the other one that everybody's going to behave as my parents that is, absurd so i kind of just constantly every night before i went to bed for a long time drilled that into my head over and over and over again because just the conscious conviction doesn't alter the subconscious feeling immediately it takes time it does take a while but that sort of uh orientation toward the world you know i was jealous i'm possessive i'm questioning my girlfriends where you're going who you're talking to and that destroys relationships and the other type of insecure attachment that you talked about is avoidant. And that is, those types of people have a problem with intimacy. They tend to push people away. So if you have either of those, you know, they mentioned the two original three. It has grown, and I don't know, you know, there's variations yeah, on each and each and all that. Yeah. But the original three, the avoidant style, that would be very detrimental to relationships also. So what what ideally we want is to have a secure Attachment style, which basically boils down to appropriate amounts of in- intimacy, right? Where we're not trying to smother another person, and we're not pushing a person away. We're appropriately interacting with another human being. Is, would that be a good way to put it?
1: Yeah, I I do, and you know, I talk about this in the book and the chapter on I think relationships. But there's this sort of tension between dependence and independence in relationships, where we have to maintain. Um, enough of our own identity and values that we we sort of are as in, in an independent and unique person while also intermixing our life and values with our partner, but without losing ourselves in that process. And there can be a fine line to walk here, and, and people who are securely attached have a much easier time walking that line. Um, but, you know, when you say that I need all people love me, yes, that's definitely a distortion, but we do need some people to love us. It turns out that connections with others of our kind... Uh, is actually critical for human mental health. Um, and there are studies about people who like just um, don't have any interactions with other humans, and their mental health actually starts to decline pretty rapidly. Um, and you can see this is actually one of the vicious cycles of depression. P- people who are depressed um, or uh, traumatized often engage in isolation behaviors, and that usually worsens their symptoms. And in fact, it turns out if you do nothing with a depressed person but change your level of social interaction, you can actually lessen the, the effects of depression. The symptoms will go down. Huh. It won't erase the depression, like the sort of core driving it is something different, but you can actually reduce the symptoms of depression by increasing social interaction and doing nothing else. Um, and this is also true for many uh, mental health disorders. Uh, addiction is a, a thing where social connection really matters. There was these early studies in the 70s where they they took these rats and they put them into a cage and they, they gave them one bottle of water and one bottle like uh, of food and water and then cocaine water. And they, they demonstrated that the rats would actually just sort of preferentially pick the cocaine water until they died. And people were like, oh, this makes sense. Look, drugs are terrible. Look how bad they are. And look, some drugs are dangerous. It's not to say like all drugs are safe. But the problem with this study, and there was another study done about 10 years ago, is that rats are social animals. So you take a social animal away from the sort of connections of those of its kind, it's deeply stressful. And it, they basically were sort of purposely committing suicide. If you can repeat this experiment, but you put those things in a rat colony, so there's an entire group of rats, families, uh, the sort of social organization they have, it, it, one, the cocaine water, was sort of normal food and water, none of them use the cocaine water.
0: Wow, there's I didn't a- know that. I was familiar yeah. with the other study, but not the one yeah. you just mentioned. Wow.
1: Right. So it turns out there's a fundamental error in the first one that that's a social animal and you've put it into an isolated situation. And now it's decompensating. Humans are the same people. Humans who are isolated will uh, are much more likely to engage in addictive behaviors. And if you can get a addicted human to engage in social behaviors and create new connections, a lot of times that by itself will break down some of the addiction. In fact, this is what we think the only thing the AA does. The only reason the AA does is a social connection. Everything else about AA doesn't actually make any sense. And their success rates are marginally better than doing nothing. So a human who does absolutely nothing to change their addiction has about a 30% chance of getting rid of the addiction in a year. A human who goes to AA has about a 33% chance of getting better. So it's literally marginally better than doing nothing. But the the thing that makes it a little better is the social connection. The rest of it, not so good.
0: One of the interesting things that I found in your book is when, when you talked about what leads to attraction so Mm -hmm. what are the factors that lead a person to be first sexually attracted to another person and ultimately falling in love with another person
1: well there those are both really big questions so let me start with the first so sexual attraction is is a complicated question and i go into this really at length in the book uh for people who like really want to like dive into it but we have um we have this thing that we call, that I call the erotic framework. And the erotic framework is sort of, um, well, let's take a step back. We have this thing called the evaluative framework where that contains our values and beliefs around the general sort of course of our life. And this will give rise to emotional reactions to things that happen in our life. So if we feel like we're, we're aiming, uh, maybe our career is going really well and our family life is going well, we might feel a sense of like contentment or pride. Um, our beliefs and our emotions are a really important part of how humans interact with reality and, and even um, experience the meaning of their values. One subset of this sort of uh, internalized values and beliefs is the erotic framework. The erotic framework is our specifically sexual um, and erotic values and beliefs this can be things like early experiences, um, you know, maybe uh, age appropriate childhood sex play, uh, things that we sort of find attractive, like many people who are into bondage, for example, can recall times in like seven or eight. And they saw someone being tied up like on maybe Looney Tunes or like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, and we don't really know why some of these things come out. There's, there's what creates sort of kinks is a very complicated question. Um, but we do think that early experiences, uh, Connect with temperament. So temperament is just sort of innate um, psychological features we're born with, and um, really can do very little to change. Unfortunately, um, they can be changed in certain domains, but we'll just kind of leave that aside. But temperament plus some of these early experiences are kind of what gives rise to the unique um, style of our our, our sexuality. Um, most people um, most people are. A little broader in their sexual repertoire than just putting a penis in a vagina, right? That's like, yes, that's a sort of sex, obviously. We're a sexual species, but most of us think that many other things are also sex. And perhaps if we only did that one particular thing, we would be um, even
0: a little bored. Um, Still an important you... thing, nonetheless, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm not trying to like minimize it, like, it's, <laughs> it's a nice thing, but. But if that, so you know let's say that and this is true sushi is my favorite kind of food if i had sushi every single night and nothing else i would probably like it less
0: i, right? I think I'm, you're right yes
1: many of us need variety um, you know in in terms of uh, our food but also in terms of our, our sexuality And, you know, the second volume of my book, which is not out yet, will have an entire chapter on what I call the Constitution and sort of fleshing out some of these features of what make us sort of unique and lead to this sort of idiosyncratic presentation of our our orientations and sexuality. Um, But to sort of get back to your question, the beliefs in the erotic framework give rise to sort of what we're going to find attractive right? And some people use uh, what we call types, right? So like maybe they are into brunettes, but those types sort of stand in for a a sort of second set of values that they associate with like brunettes. Like let's say they're into brunettes with glasses. That's going to be, that type is going to stand for uh, maybe like education or someone who's more serious or sort of trustworthy, but it's going to be sort of these values really that they're responding to and not the sort of type, um, despite them sort of thinking of in terms of types. These So these are connected to, again, our sense of uh, life, our existential orientation. Love at first sight is really um, an existential orientation reaction where we see someone and in the first several seconds, we can judge their their existential orientation based on their mannerisms, their comportment, uh, the way they look and act. And we can have an immediate sense of whether or not um, we're going to be compatible with these people uh, based on just that, that quick reaction. And this for many people um, gives starts the process of falling in love, but it's not necessary. And it's also, strictly speaking, not love. It's really more of a proto-love. It's a sort of uh, subconscious prompting that this person matches whatever it is we hold, um, which doesn't mean that it's going to be a good connection, because if our, if our erotic framework has complicated um, values in it, Um, So let's say maybe we are, you know, you talk about sort of parents who are emotionally immature. Um, If we have parents who are emotionally mature and we've always been treated as sort of um, that our needs don't matter, that pattern is going to show up in our erotic framework and we're going to find a partner who will treat us the same way. Because it turns out humans, psychologically, we see familiarity as safety. And so we will go to the patterns we know. Um, So what causes attraction is like a really large topic but this is kind of what does it right this this is serata framework some of the features of our past um, give rise to attraction in this for most of us starts the process of falling in love right we find someone we're attracted to that we sort of feel like we would connect on uh, connect with in um, that starts of process Now, what falling in love sort of this is kind of proto-love it goes through this sort of honeymoon phase where where the our sort of sexual desires are very intense our desire to connect with them is very intense um you know we often use this sort of platonic metaphor of two becoming one and sort of the sexual act um plato has this kind of interesting story of the proto-humans and how they, they made this assault on mount olympus and zeus split them in half but that's why we want to go back together in the sexual act to become this original beast with four arms and four legs and um, I mean, it makes little sense, but these myths are still very dominant in our culture, right? So this myth of, of the proto-humans and like coming together into one thing, uh, this idea of soulmates, these are all Plato. Um, real real soulmates don't exist. I mean, that's not a thing. We weren't split by Zeus. Um, at least most of us don't believe that, right? As I'm pretty confident. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure, right? Um you know, I would imagine we'd struggle to find any adherents of Zeus at this point in human history. so uh, but these myths live on. But this is the early stage. And as love deepens, what what it really means to fall in love with someone is to start to see them as, as sort of part of who we are as sort of entering into our sense of personal identity. And we do this um, by acting in their interest and incorporating them into our hierarchy of values. So not only do we care about them, in sort of the early stage, we care about their ends as love sort of deepens and matures. And that's kind of a sort of the fundamental distinction as if love starts to go from the sort of early limerence, uh, honeymoon phase, new relationship energy, whatever kind of term you want to use, and it starts to mature. In deep, mature love um, is going to be less reactive than sort of that immature love. But it, it comes with a sort of deep sense that you know your partner, that you guys are really a major feature in each other's lives, that you understand each other, that you're sort of very psychologically visible to each other. And this is a much more significant value than sort of the early, um, somewhat more tumultuous, somewhat more anxious, um, but also somewhat more exciting um, early stages of glimmerance, new relationship, energy, etc. Um, so I don't know. I, I I think I've answered both those questions now.
0: They're they're not easy questions to answer, for sure. They're uh, not. Okay, so you get in a relationship. First, let me just say this. I think it's interesting. The idea of we fall for people ultimately that share our values or, you know, our sense of life. Because Well, when I'm well be- actually,
1: that's an that's actually an important difference. Not that share our values, only that share a sense of life. Okay. Because so you actually might and this is so let's say that among like group of objectivists I presumably share many of these values. I'm a eudaimonist, I think, in terms of human flourishing. I think Ayn Rand was an amazing philosopher. Um, I share many of the values, but I might actually just hate some of these people. Our sure. sense of life is just not compatible. Our friendships and romantic relationships are actually more about our existential orientation than the explicit values people hold. And this is actually a really important thing because people often say, oh, if we shared values, it'd be a good relationship. It's like, no,
0: that is not how humans work. That's an It's an interesting distinction. I I would say that it's more impl- that sense of life and more implicit values and that that matter, because like you said, we could both value a lot of the same things explicitly and hate each other. Yeah, just when never
1: I, never be friends, right? Like, no, just don't even like being around each other.
0: When I first started talking to my current girlfriend on the telephone and writing to her, now I knew her, but I hadn't spoken to her in a long time. She wrote to me while I was in prison, and I fell for her almost immediately. And, you know, we have a lot of differences and I, and I'm thinking, you know, why would it be that would this be the case that I would fall for her so quickly when we have, you know, we don't really have the same concrete interests. And what I realized was we had a sort of value affinity or a sense of life infinity on a deeper level. For instance, mm-hmm. the, you know, I talked to her and she brought up metaphysics, something I'm very interested in. She talked about, you know, when she debates with somebody that she doesn't mind as long as somebody has evidence to back up their claim. That's sort of a a big value for me. I don't I don't mind debating. I don't mind disagreeing. Smart people can disagree just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean they're an imbecile and vice versa. But I do want somebody to go by the laws of debate and follow logic and not tell me that, you know, green is red and red is green. Sure. And then she mentioned something to me that I that's always I've always thought was very important. Let me not always since I started the 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 sort of change process in myself. She said she talked to me about visibility and mm-hmm. the fact that she, her she had never read Ayn Rand, she had never read Nathaniel Brandon, but she understood the importance of psychological visibility. Once these things sort of came together, my attraction to her made sense to me. I understood it because, yeah, you know, you may not be interested in economics and philosophy like I am, but your approach, your orientation toward life was similar to mine. So I, I find that incredibly interesting. Now, ultimately, your book, it's, it's, it's a three-volume set, right? It's going to be three volumes.
1: I mean, we'll see, but yeah, that's the goal. Aspirationally, three
0: volumes. Aspirationally, three, three volumes, but it's about ethics. It's about how we should behave. Mm-hmm. So when we're in sexual relationships, in romantic relationships, and I'm going to take, I'm going to ask, how should we behave? But ultimately, what I mean, and I think that the ethics means this to also is, what are the keys to making the relationship work?
1: Well, so I think there's kind of two important questions here. Philosophy really deals more with the sort of ethical questions of, of appropriate ways for humans to interact with each other, how to think about, um, you know, what will contribute to our flourishing and sort of these sorts of things. And um, this is not to say that philosophy is not part of psychology. Yeah, the psychology very much grows out of philosophy. Um, and, you know, the, the guy talked about Albert Ellis in the 50s. The cognitive revolution started with a reference to stoicism. Philosophy is really deeply, deeply intertwined with psychology. And even today, um, there's a sort of modern movement started by a a guy named um, Martin Seligman uh, who started the movement called positive psychology. And positive psychology is very explicitly eudaimonistic. Um, So it is actually just eudaimonistic enterprise in psychology. Um, Psychology, you can kind of split into sort of two areas. One, clinical, where we help people get rid of depression or PTSD or these things. And the other, positive psychology, is now that the problems are gone, where do we go from here? How do we improve things? And so, you know, positive psychology is a sort of unique area, um, but you can kind of think this like clinical getting rid of problems versus moving forward questions. We've done a lot of research on what makes relationships thrive. And um, there are sort of two uh, major schools that I think do an exceptional job. Uh, the first is um, uh, there's some research. Uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking on their name right now. Uh, oh, the Gottmans, uh, Jean and Julie Gottman. Uh, they they have this thing called the Love Lab, and they started doing research um, on um, attraction in r- relationships. And prior to them, couples therapy was um, a lot squishier. There wasn't really a ton of um, data to back it up. And they showed that they could actually predict whether a couple would remain married over even a five-year period with above an 80% accuracy. Wow. That's basically impossible before them. Like, no one could have done that. I mean, 50 50, maybe, you know, like you're talking about slight shift past chance, but probably not. Their research is amazing and they've identified a lot of sort of um, practices and tools and ways of conceptualizing um, how to actually have relationships. So, like, one of their books, for example, is Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And that book actually does a great job of, of teaching people how to um, have the practical skills. Now, philosophy would say, "Look, humans are a value. Certain kinds of relationships are a value. This intimacy is um, going to help us contribute to our flourishing. Um, This is sort of the sort of moral ways we should interact with." And the psychologists say, "Okay, well, here's how actually we do these things based on the research." Um, There is an area of of philosophy called practical philosophy, uh, or sorry, experimental philosophy, but. It's basically just a return to, um, you know, prior to the sort of scientific revolution, everything we now call science was called natural philosophy. Experimental philosophy is kind of just a return to natural philosophy. It's kind of just, I mean, this is, I guess, maybe my own bias against it. It seems like just kind of slopshod science um, and called it experimental philosophy. But I think they kind of aim at two different things. Like, What is sort of the nature of humans in a good human life? And how do we sort of practically gain the skills to do that? That's psychology versus philosophy.
0: It's interesting to me that you brought up Martin Seligman and in relation to the question of what makes relationships work, right? Martin Seligman initially did the studies with, I think it was dogs, where they discovered that some dogs would just give up, right? If you put them in a tough situation, eventually they just accepted it and didn't try to get out of the situation. And they called that learned helplessness. But Mm -hmm. what he then found interesting was that some dogs didn't give up. And what he wanted to find was why not? Why do they stick with it? Why do they keep going? Why don't they learn helplessness? And he called it learned optimism. And it seems mm-hmm. to me that that all relationships, whether they be friendships, romantic, business, whatever, are going to be tough. And I think we're all in those moments faced with the choice. Do we give up and accept learned helplessness where we can do nothing? Or do we say, no, I want to make this work and put forth the effort to do so. And I, for me... And I I think for everybody, but I think communication, like I don't, when I'm faced with a situation, whether to uh, share something or tell my girlfriend something or keep it a secret and I'm not sure what to do, I always side on sharing because I think just honesty is the default position. I mean, I am who I am. I do what I do. And I want to be loved for me, not for some show that I can put on for somebody else. And I, it just seems like that's the better way to go if you want to make a relationship work. So I just think that sticking with it, being willing to stick with it and being honest, open, communicating are very <clears throat> vital to make relationships work. Now, that kind of leads me to my next question. While I think it's important to fight for relationships, you talk about, basically, it's the the line to walk, right? What are the dangers? This is my question. What are the dangers of staying in a relationship too long and what are the dangers of getting out of relationship too quickly?
1: Well, so let me answer both questions at once and kind of deal with them individually. Um, the goal of a human romantic relationship is to uh, create, uh, to have this experience of deep uh, intimacy and connection with another human in that, that for most of us and nearly all of us has a sexual component I say nearly all asexuals are about 0.3% of the population. so 99.7% of people deeply value this thing, right? To to varying degrees. I mean, obviously there's huge differences. That's sort of the broad way to think about this. What is the function of a relationship? It's this deep, intimate, emotional connection, a, a partner in life, someone who can help you sort of think through things and all sorts of things, right? The danger of staying too long is that our lives are finite. If our lives were infinite, it wouldn't matter how long we stayed, right? We, we do 92 years over here and 142 years over there and whatever, right? We're not going to die. We are mortals and our days are not guaranteed to us. And so staying too long means we're wasting some of our precious time. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just immediately pull the plug uh, if something goes wrong in a relationship. I think it really depends on a person's character. And one of the most fundamental questions is, is a person willing to be introspective, to think about their issues, and to work to change the problems that come up in their life and relationship? And if the answer is yes, even if there's rough patches, that person is worth staying with. But the answer is no, they're not willing to to talk about their problems, they're not willing to work on stuff, they're deeply avoidant, maybe they're coping in in very maladaptive ways, Uh, they're not sort of engaging in the process of being in a relationship, that's not going to contribute to your flourishing, nor theirs, and it's best to pull the plug. Now one sort of philosophical danger here is that many people have bought into this idea of soulmates, and they believe that if they find the right partner, whatever the right partner means, fucking Plato, uh, that... There will be no work. It'll be easy. It'll be effortless. And because they hold this belief, they often give up on relationships too easily because as soon as they're work, it must mean it's not their soulmate. Um, it's a very deeply fixed mindset idea, uh, but this is one of the sort of cultural values that, that Plato has given to us. And because of this, you see people give up on really good relationships because there are some problems or because it takes work. Um, and that's really, really unfortunate. Um there's a famous book in psychology by um Aaron Beck I think uh who is a founder of CBT but the book's title love is never enough and I think that that's very true love is never enough to actually make a relationship thrive it takes a lot of other skills and values skills around emotional intelligence skills around communication um skills about you know developing and cultivating empathy and internalizing our partners in certain ways and all of those things come together in a good relationship. And it's not easy to develop these skills, especially if we weren't taught them growing up or we didn't see them modeled with our parents or we're in a culture that really doesn't advocate these things. Like, I mean, our culture says little boys, you know, suck it up and walk it off. Or at least when I was younger, it did. We didn't advocate for emotional intelligence, especially the boys, girls a little better. Um, but our culture isn't really big on emotional intelligence with big on connection. Um, we really have sort of an avoidant culture that often... Um, likes to pass responsibility right there's this sort of thing people do that we call masturbation psychology where they say things like must have to gotta ought to should to imply necessity when they in fact there just isn't and that's a way to sort of pass responsibility for their life and and how it's going because oh they don't have any choice with now for they can't be blamed despite it being a lie um so you know i sort of to go back to the question directly I think that really the right way to think of this is the
0: broad perspective. What is the
1: function of the relationship? And then that can really help us avoid either
0: side. In the per- So the, basically the purpose of a relationship is happiness. That's why we want relationships. That's why we want romantic love. And if it becomes obvious that a relationship is not going to fulfill that function, it's probably time to get out. Whereas we don't want to give up on a relationship that does have the potential and the the probability of fulfilling that role
1: and making us happy. Well, I wouldn't say making us happy. I think it's actually a really dangerous formulation because you're right, it is. Control our emotions. (laughs) Yes. Um, But. Relationships are constitutive of happiness for most people. So it's not just merely it contributes happiness, it's part of what it means to live a good human life for most of us based on our constitution. Right? It's it's one of the pieces of the puzzle of happiness without which most of us will never see the image of happiness arise to sort of use a metaphor here.
0: Before I let you go, I gotta ask, the influence that Ayn Rand has had on you is unmistakable. Hmm. Are there any areas when it comes to sex and love with which you differ from her? And if so, what are they?
1: Yeah, there's a couple. So Ayn Rand was polyamorous for about seven years, and it's kind of complicated uh, her relationship with Nathaniel Brandon about how much Frank, her husband, consented to this. But when that went south, it turns out Brandon Wisley wasn't the person she thought he was. she sort of threw out the whole idea that that non-monogamy could be moral because of her experience. And I think that was a pretty critical mistake. I don't think the non-monogamy is the ideal for everyone. I think monogamy is in fact the best choice for some people. But I think it needs to be a choice. I think we need to be really thoughtful about this and and careful and I, don't th- I think that because she had this really bad experience with it, she just kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater, despite having had many years where she was very happily polyamorous. Um, you know, Prior to that term didn't exist back then. Um, so that's an area we disagree. Um, I, I disagree with her idea um, that um, the way she conceptualized masculinity and femininity as being um, normative I do think that it's sort of just factually true that women on average tend to be more submissive and men tend to be more dominant. Um, But the research is not that it's like 100%, right? There are many submissive men, there are many more passive men, there are many sort of more active women. And I think it's very sort of a a, a strange philosophical move to say that there's something wrong with these people, that that they're not participating in masculinity or femininity, right? Um, In fact, the book, my book goes uh, sort of deep into this question of uh, these things. I call them the societal sex roles. And I think that these things are sort of largely determined by a culture. And I think it's important as individualists that we don't have these very rigid categories. We think about what would be best. so, So I'm biologically male. How am I going to express that biological maleness in a way that's sort of deeply true to who I am and my values? And I think that question is really important. And I think she... I just don't think she engaged with it deeply enough um, and it's not I don't think she was not capable of. I very much think she was, but she has sort of she's in records saying that she thinks that sex really isn't an appropriate topic for philosophy that it's sort of too intimate and you know she was born at a very different time
0: um really she, where 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 did she say that? because I've always thought that she made sex a big part of philosophy. Shh.
1: Yes and no. I mean, look at look for references in her books. Um, so, if you want to look for things she says about sex, uh, Francisco's sex speech is one of the few things she talks very explicitly about human sexuality. The other stuff is all implied. So, look at the Match King. The Match King. Uh, the night of January sixteenth. What it is. Uh, in that book, the sort of match king, he has this platinum gown made, and he he takes it and puts it by the fire, so it gets really hot, and he puts it on his mistress, so it burns her. She rises with sort of um, ecstasy and sort of pain, and she was very into BDSM. Um, all of her books have like really strong elements of BDSM, which again, I also don't think that's normative. Like, I don't think we should have norms around that people should be into BDSM, but I think she very much thought that that was natural. Um, She's very into submission and, and BDSM and, and pain as part of sex, and I don't have any problem with that. But I don't think that all of us hold those values or kinks. Um, most of the references to sex are very implicit. You know, you look at um, uh, at the end of the the John Galt line, uh, Reardon and Dagner laying in bed, and it talks about like the violence of the night before not being witnessed by the, the light of day. They're not very explicit comments. I think um, – you know, I've been trying to think about what the answer to this. I think it's in Ayn Rand um, answers. It was an answer to a question that she got live, and she sort of said that like sex isn't really something we – you know, we, that it's not really a proper domain for philosophy.
0: I think uh, that what she actually said, and it's been years since I read it, so I may be wrong, but I believe that what she said is you have to be very careful when judging the sexual lives of other people. Because you, you don't know, that, ultimately that I would know agree with what we. Yeah, I think that that's what she said. I in, in you know Leonard Peikoff's book Objectivism, the the philosophy of Ayn Rand. There's a section devoted to sex, in almost, you know, in many. I don't want to say almost all, but in many of her fiction and nonfiction fiction writing, she she addressed it. I can't imagine she would have said ever that sex is not the a proper scope of philosophy. <laughs> But so
1: I agree that it shows up in her fiction. It shows up in all of her fiction. Um, and again, all of it's very kinky, right? It's all very sort of BDSM based. But look for the nonfiction, right? So there's a response to a papal encyclical, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Uh, that where she very explicitly talks about sex and sort of the, the function of pleasure in life she talks about it she makes a couple of passing comments in the romantic manifesto uh, francisco's sex and love speech but there aren't many other places where she spends much time talking about sex and i i do think that's on purpose and i i admit i could be wrong about this it's been a long time since i've looked up mm-hmm. this quote but i i'm feeling pretty confident that she does say this um i don't you know i think that she came from a time where people didn't talk about sex openly and i think that I don't think she, she's very much, I think a product for time on this particular point, um, but she may have had sort of more deeply philosophical reasons. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. My, you know, sort of go back to your question for a second. My disagreements are kind of small with, mm-hmm. with her sexual positions. Like I think she overemphasized masculine and femininity. It was kind yeah. of rigid about the concepts. I think she sort of leaned too much into BDSM and, and sort of thought that everyone did. And I don't think that's everyone's kink. And again, don't have any problem. I think it's very, it's one of the most common kinks possible, but it doesn't mean it's everyone's kink and some of us aren't going to have any interest in it. Um, But really besides this, uh, you know, I think uh, she, she wasn't really a big fan of homosexuality. And despite Frank's brother being gay um, who she was on very friendly terms with, um, you know, she is on sort of record as saying that she found the sort of practice uh, disgusting, not, but necessarily immoral uh, but that she had a personal disgust reaction to it because of how she thought of as masculinity mm-hmm. um, those are sort of the, the primary disagreements i i would like to say that she would think uh, that she would have a positive view of my work but i mean i have no idea and you know it's not really my goal i have a deep respect for her and what she did um but my goal wasn't to sort of make something compatible with objectivism my goal was to aim at the truth and you know i do consider myself an objectivist i'm absolutely eudaimonist but you know i'm not i wasn't trying to situate my my work sort of in that tradition necessarily um i i don't think i speak for objectivism and you know i i'm very aware that there are some sort of divergence points between our views
0: I think what you just said is very important. I think we ought to never be aiming to conform to anything but reality. That that That's vital. Jason, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Uh,
1: so, the book you can find anywhere um, Amazon, uh, you know, it, it, depending on sort of what country you're in, but Amazon uh, has it. Uh, it's on Audible for the, the audiobook. Uh, you can get the Kindle edition. Um, my website is jasonstots.com. So, Jason spelled as you might expect, stots is S T O T T S.com. Uh, that's also has my blog, which is uh, a little defunct at this point, um, but I was, I blogged there for many, many years and I, I most likely will still. Um, and, you know, if someone wants to sort of come to me for, for sex therapy or therapy, you would have to be in, I'm physically located in Ontario. I'm only licensed to practice here. So, you need to be in Ontario. But it's very easy to find me. Just oh, wait, away. I
0: didn't know you were Canadian.
1: I'm not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're not no, Canadian? I'm, <laughs> I'm not Canadian. Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. I, uh, uh, I've i lived all over the U.S. Um, I spent a long time in Atlanta and a long time um, in California and sometime in New York, a bunch of time in Ohio. So I've been kind of all over and now I'm in Ontario. So a bit itinerant, I guess.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for being here. For now, this is The Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz signing out. Remember, like, share, comment, subscribe. Till next time.